get that going. Right. So, as Sam said, I uh, took this on fairly short notice, and then I was away all of yesterday, so it's just as well the clocks went uh, back an hour this morning, gave me a little bit more time uh, to have a look at it. We're looking at the cent- Jesus' conversations, and this time we're looking at the centurion and the servant, though there's no record here, he actually had a conversation of either. Uh, this is Luke chapter 7 and verses 1 to 10. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Right, we're a chapter on, well, a chapter and a half on, from where I was speaking last week about the calling of Matthew. And in Luke's Gospel, in between, Jesus has been teaching the people, uh, the equivalent to what we looked at over the last three years of Matthew's Gospel of the Sermon on the Mount. And he comes back to Capernaum. So he's now back in the same town he was in, which are last week, if you like, when I was talking then. All right? So he's back in the same town where he called Matthew, where he went to have eat with the tax collectors and sinners, and where the Pharisees had a go at his disciples and him for doing that. And we're a bit further down the line. This centurion had obviously been observing what was going on. He knew about Jesus. Why? There could be lots of different reasons. There could be political ones. Because, as I think I pointed out last week, the Romans didn't rule this area directly. They did it through Herod. So, the commentators aren't really too sure why is there a centurion in Capernaum? Is it the Romans didn't quite trust Herod and wanted to have a group of their own people there just keeping an eye on things? So, was he, if you like, the uh, 
equivalent to in the British Empire days of a polit political agent whose job is to liaise with the local government, keep an eye on what's going on, report back to higher authority in Caesarea. So is he keeping an eye on what's going on just to keep his political superiors informed? Or did he have religious reasons for keeping an eye on what's happening with Jesus? Because these Jewish elders who come say he has built our new synagogue for us. So obviously he's been around for a while. He's not somebody who's just arrived. He knows the area. Now, if you look in the Roman uh, records, there are cases of Roman centurions and other uh, Roman officials in the provinces, if you like, building religious temples and buildings. Some probably did it for cynical reasons. A good way of getting on the right side of the locals. Some might have done it for what we would consider sort of rather dubious religious reasons. Do something to honour the local gods, so therefore you have a soft time and don't have any problems while you're there. You know, it's always wise to keep the local gods on your side. But it looks like this centurion isn't doing it for that kind of reason. It looks like he's genuinely seeking after God. Because the elders who come say he loves our people. And I think as Lou commented uh, when she was speaking about the school's work uh, earlier in the month. You know, you, people can tell when somebody's doing it because it's their job or they've got a vested interest in it and when somebody's doing something because they actually believe it and uh, it's real to them. So, he's been observing Jesus He's been observing what's going on around. People know that Jesus heals. So when his servant, whom he cares for, which actually says quite a bit about his character to start with, falls ill, he wants what is best for his servant. He knows that Jesus can heal his servant. But he doesn't know Jesus himself at this point. So, he sends intermediaries to come. He asks some of the Jewish elders, who obviously he knows from the synagogue being built and from his life in the town. And they come to Jesus. I don't know what your imagination would be of what they'd actually say to Jesus. Because we're only given the end bit really here. But it says that they pleaded with Jesus earnestly. 
and they said of this centurion, he's worthy to have you do this for him. Do you think Jesus goes to heal this person's servant because he's worthy? Jesus hears this from the elders and goes. But is that why Jesus goes? I don't know. I don't know. Is it likely? After all, if you take what I was preaching about last week, where you've got the Pharisees coming to Jesus and say, why are you mixing with these tax collectors and sinners? Why aren't you mixing with righteous people like us? Do you think that because somebody is assessed as being worthy, would be a reason for Jesus to go? Or does Jesus recognise in what he's told about this person, that there's some faith there. He's putting his trust in the God of the uh, Jewish people. He's putting his trust in the creator of the world. Maybe even he's putting his trust in Jesus. We don't have enough written here to know exactly how this person is feeling. But I think usually, and as we, Sam was mentioning at the beginning, and when we look at Jesus, he, he reacts to people's faith. How they, do they trust him or not? So maybe he's seen, rather than the reasons which the elders have come and given him, he's seen there's something there in this person, therefore he's going to go. So, he starts going. And then before he even gets there, so presumably somebody's gone dashing off to report back, Jesus is actually coming, he's on his way. He sends some other friends, we don't know what sort of friends these are, whether these are more Jewish elders or whatever, to say the following. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. Got a bit of a conflict here, haven't we? We've got the elders saying, this guy's worthy, you need to do this for him, Jesus, he deserves it. And he's saying, I'm not worthy. Because he knows, compared to Jesus, he isn't. He says, therefore I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And then he gives this well-known bit, you know, I'm... Actually, it's interesting. He doesn't say, I am a man with authority and I tell the soldier to do this or do that and they do it. He says, I am a man under authority and I say, do this. And he does it. In a sense, he recognises that his authority comes because there's somebody higher up than him. If you're trying to do an analogy, you can't do perfect analogies, but if you try and do an analogy with, say, British Army ranks, he'd probably be at, say, captain level. You know, so he's got 
authority, but there's quite a few people higher up the chain than him. But because he is under authority, he can tell people to do this. He recognises the authority Jesus has. He recognises that authority is from God. I think would be an implication of this. So what does Jesus do? Well firstly, we're told that he, he was amazed, he marvelled. Which according to the commentaries only happens twice in the Gospels. We've got this Roman centurion who almost as if like stopped Jesus dead in his tracks because of the way he responds in faith. He says, I've never seen such faith in Israel. Now the interesting thing is, what does the centurion say? He says, say the word and my servant will be healed. We don't even get any record that Jesus says a word. He sees the faith this centurion has, basically, I presume, just sends everybody who he sent go back. He might have said a word. You'd have thought if he had, that the, it'd be so important that Luke, who was a very much a historian kind of person, would have recorded it. It might have had some significance. But there's no record of it. He sees this person's faith, he responds to it, and the servant is healed. So actually, it's not really a great deal much of a conversation, but that doesn't really fit in with our title too well. But, the thing is, this person's faith, his trust in Jesus, is not emotional in that sense. He's looking, if you like, at hard facts. He has observed what Jesus does and he recognises because of what Jesus does he is a person with authority, if you like, under authority. And he decides, having observed what Jesus does, that it is safe for him to put his trust in Jesus. Not that faith doesn't have an emotional element to it. But, if faith is only emotional, it's going to be very dependent on what's happened last. You know, did things go as you expected or not? But if faith is based, if you like, on hard fact, on reality, yes, what's happened last will affect our emotions and will affect us. But it doesn't rock our faith, which is grounded in the fact of who Jesus is. So therefore, 
I think one thing we need to bring out from this is when we look at Jesus are we going to respond to him purely in terms of who he is is he who he claims he is because ultimately it comes down to either Jesus is who he claims he is and it's of supreme authority importance just brings back to mind the C.S. Lewis quote you know either he is who he is and it's of supreme importance or he isn't in which case he's probably mad or bad but if he isn't who he claims he is he's of no importance the only thing he can't be is moderately important so I haven't got any nice neat ending that's about as far as I got uh, with that but it just struck me you know I think uh, if you don't mind me mentioning Ruth as you mentioned at our growth group on Thursday with the last story actually when you look at a passage like this you know it's you read it and it te- you know that's it you Okay, you can look a bit deeper and get a bit more, but basically what it says is what it uh, is uh, all that it says in a sense. There's no hidden meanings here. It's just straightforward. I think one point I would the point I would make on this healing, I think it does strike home to us that there is no pattern necessarily in how Jesus heals people. You know, here, no physical contact, not even in the same room, servant is healed. Other times, there is physical contact when Jesus heals people. Sometimes when he heals, it's only part way to begin with, and then it gets completed. Sometimes it happens after they've left Jesus. You know, the lepers were told they were healed as they went away. So, Jesus heals in lots of different ways. So let's not get ourselves fixed in thinking, if there's only one way we can pray for somebody to be healed, there's only one way Jesus can do it. He can do it many ways. What I'd like to do for sort of the next part is actually go back a bit to what I was talking about last week because and sort of the questions I set uh, for growth groups on that. Uh, because last week when we looked at Matthew, the call of Matthew, he, Jesus called him to go and follow him and he left everything and followed. And then well, I was also talking about the fact that Jesus was meeting with the tax collectors and sinners who the Pharisees thought, you know, what's he doing mixing with people like that? And I sort of set some questions to try and get a bit behind thinking through what are those implications of things like that for us individually and as a church. 
And this is also tying in a bit with some of the things which were said at the Jubilee Plus conference uh, yesterday. So the Jubilee Plus conference is across all the uh, New Frontiers groups of churches in this country and particularly looking at social action by the church and uh, encouraging that. But also they do research into what churches are doing, research into what, you know, uh, Matthew Charles, sorry, Martin Charlesworth heads it up and saying, you know, what they're looking at the moment is what are going to be the issues in 20 years' time? And as you said, if you, he'd said the word food bank to you 20 years ago, you'd have looked puzzled and said, what? Or why? Now, you know, even 10 years ago onwards, you know, in the last 10 years, almost everybody knows what a food bank is. So looking at what will be the issues coming up, what do we need to prepare the churches for so that when those issues become significant, we're ready and not called out. But, and if you haven't been to one, I would very thoroughly recommend going, even if you don't think social action is your thing, because even just knowing what is happening across the churches just enables you to have a wider picture and to pray better. But the next one is going to be even closer than Cambridge. It's going to be at Wimbledon on November the 10th. So uh, I certainly recommend going to one of those. I think, coming back to what I said last time, I think when I was asking about, you know, do we respond when Jesus calls us to go, I found it quite interesting in the growth group that immediately people thought in terms of going overseas, going away. Now, obviously, there's an element of that, because after all... But one point I did make when I was preaching was I think Matthew was different from the majority of the people around there who were following Jesus. In the sense that Matthew got called to go, the majority of people didn't. So we need to be prepared for the calls to go, literally away, to another place, to another country. But I think the call to go isn't just limited to people moving geographically. There's also, if like, the mental call to be able to go and reach people we wouldn't normally reach within our own community. Now, recently published by Matthew Charlesworth and Natalie Williams, who also works for uh, Jubilee Plus, is a book called The Church for the Poor, which Lynn got hold of a copy, so I've nicked hers because I didn't get one myself. And... Actually, the first half of the book was tied into a, bit to a seminar which Lynn went to in the morning with Natalie on uh, what assumptions do we make. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And the second half is tied much more to a seminar I went to in the afternoon with Martin Charlesworth, which was sort of what are the leadership challenges of having a church for the poor. And I think there's a lot of very good stuff uh, which we're obviously going to need to think about how it impacts what we do as a church here. And I think all the main conference bits and the seminars will be going online soon. When they are, I'll let you know. Uh, Mike, this time around, it was Relational Mission who were hosting it, and Mike Betts was one of the uh, main speakers, which was uh, excellent as it usually is with him.
But one thing which Lynn and I ended up talking about quite a bit yesterday evening after we got home at the seminar uh, Lynn went to, and as happens, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night, it's been sort of whirring around in the sort of cogs of my brain uh, through the night on and off, and I've been thinking a bit about it. So, just some thoughts on this one. Natalie would describe that she would comes from a working class background. And she got saved when she was 15, and she was, became part of the church in Hastings, which she still is. And, you know, various people in the church invited her uh, for meals, which she went to. A bit confusing, because they did things differently from the way she was used to. So, I think, I was it 15 years later? Ten years later, right. Ten years later, somebody in the church pointed out to her that it was normal if you got invited around for a meal to take a present. And she suddenly thought, help, have I been doing this wrong for the last ten years? And I would have been upsetting people. Because in her culture, that wasn't normal. That's not what you did. My question is, the person who told her that, were they giving helpful advice, or were they being a crass idiot? And I think the answer to that depends on how important you think it is giving a present to somebody when you go for a meal. Because, you, you know, I don't know, I don't think there's an answer to that one, actually, because I'm sure they're doing it from the first perspective, I hope they were. But it does, it does actually raise questions. What assumptions do we make? Because inevitably, and this is something which came out in the seminar I was on, any church will have a main culture. You can't have any group of people without a culture developing. I think what we need to be very conscious of are are we letting our culture develop by default or are we being very uh, thinking very carefully about what kind of culture we want within the church. Going back to, you know, got me, I say, it's just got my sort of uh, cogwheels working. With concept of taking a pre present if you were visiting somebody for a meal. Now, if I'm thinking about it, I don't know how, how you would think about it. This is how I would think it. And then I'll say what I do. Because it's it, it really got me challenged. If I was going for a meal with family, I wouldn't take a present. I see the church as family, and therefore I wouldn't. So how do I handle when I invite somebody from the church for a meal and they bring a present? Do I get offended that they're treating me like a social acquaintance 
rather than treating me as family. And then I came to the conclusion that this sort of thing is wise not to try starting thinking too deeply about. Otherwise, you just grind yourself into the ground. Because then, having said that, if I invite you for a meal, you're going to be thinking, ooh, do we take a present or not? Or are we going to offend him if we do? Now, the conclusion I've come to on this is that if you want to bless me and bring a present, you're welcome to, and that's how I interpret it, whatever your motive for doing it was. You know, I will give you the benefit of the doubt that your motive is a good one, rather than you, you're not doing it because you don't want to offend me by not bringing one. And if you don't bring one, I'm not going to be offended because I'm not looking for one anyway, but, you know, it's, so, it's a win-win. And I think, however we develop our culture in the church, what we need to do is always, because it's inevitable, however similar your culture seems to be, that you're going to do things differently. Now, Lynn and I come from fairly similar middle-class backgrounds. When we were first married, we had difficulties on what do you do at Christmas? Because what she did in her family at Christmas and what I did, you know, even down to things like, when do you open Christmas presents? You know, it can become a big issue. Because, you do, it's not, and of course the thing about culture is you haven't thought about it because you, it's just what you t- as, take as being normal. And it's only when you actually come across something which is different, you suddenly think... Now, when you come across something different, do you assume the other person's wrong? Or do you realise, ah, this is different? It's not right or wrong, it's just different. Because if, as we do, we want to see our church reflect the whole community here in Faversham more than it does at the moment that is going to you know we're going to get more things where things you know there's this scope for offending people without intending to you know and therefore we i think we need very consciously to think you know i'm not going to be like no the pharisees were getting offended by what jesus did I've no idea what they thought about what happened in this episode, we're not told. But I think we need very much an attitude of not being offended by one another. And if somebody does something differently, giving them the benefit of the doubt as to what their motivation is. Because our culture, I think, is going... (coughs) I can see... You know, it does seem to be going very much towards if if some, somebody does something you don't agree with, of not giving the benefit of the doubt and assuming that the uh, motivation is malicious. So I think as part of our culture, we need to uh, be very different from that. I know I've mentioned this book before in the past, but if you want to have some understanding of the different English cultures, 
Uh, I thoroughly recommend this book, Watching the English by Kate Fox. She is a social anthropologist, but rather than going off to some remote uh, tribe in Africa or Pacific Islands, which is what anthropologists tend to do for their research projects, she decided, she, uh, I think for various reasons, she either couldn't afford it or needed to stay in this country, so she actually has written about the English, which is actually quite fascinating, because it actually opens your eyes to some of the things which you just take for granted. And it looks at, you know, how do people from different uh, cultural backgrounds respond in different situations. She obviously, she uh, sort of used her research to make uh, quite a bit of money out of PG Tips, because I think she advised them on uh, their advertising. You know, if you're advertising PG Tips tea, what are the things the English associate drinking cups of tea with? And uh, therefore, you know, that's how you should focus. Why they needed a social anthropologist to tell them that, I've no idea. But, um, you know, but it, it is a fascinating book. But the thing is, we need to be very careful as we, the church develops that we have a culture which is inclusive of people. And we're not setting up barriers by saying, no, if you don't behave in this particular way, in this context, uh, there's an issue. Anyway, let's pray. <clears throat>